Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features an interview with Dan Streetman, Chief Executive Officer of TIBCO, a revolutionary software company that allows communication within the financial markets to occur in real time and without human intervention. Dan is an expert at leveraging real-time data to enable faster, smarter decisions. Prior to leading TIBCO, Dan helped propel significant data-driven transformations, most recently at BMC, Salesforce, and C3.ai. He is a strong advocate for creating cultures of collaboration, and he honed his leadership skills as a U.S. Army officer, serving in combat operations and receiving decorations, including the Bronze Star. Dan is a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and earned an MBA at Harvard Business School. In this episode of On Point, Dan talks about how always finding the right solution and having humility are critical in everything you do. He explains that teamwork is crucial for success, both in business and the military. Dan provides career advice for transitioning veterans, talks about receiving the distinguished MacArthur Leadership Award while at West Point, and gives insight into his post-military career path. Now, please enjoy this interview between Dan Streetman and your hosts, Tim Shaw and Lance Dietz. Welcome to On Point, a podcast started by Eddie Kang, West Point Class of 2008. I'm your host, Tim Shaw, Class of 2004. And I'm Lance Dietz, Class of 2008. And today we're joined by Dan Streetman, Class of 1990. Dan, how are you? Hey, I'm great today. Thanks, guys. Really a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Let's get into our first segment, AAR, or for our non-military listeners, After Action Review. In this segment, we'd like to touch on specifically what other veterans can learn from you, your process, and your journey. Dan, could you please talk about your decision to attend West Point? Certainly. And uh, that's one of those first places where you learn a lot about the process. One of the things I think West Point, in any tough situation, teaches all of us is the importance of humility. And for me, that started actually applying to West Point. I was a sophomore in high school. We took our family to New York City. We drove the 20-something hours from Florida, my mom's station wagon. And while we were there, my dad decided we would pop over to West Point so I could see what it was about. So it was probably close to the last week in March. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon. And so when we arrived, the entire Corps of Cadets was out running. Not in formation or any organized way. They're all just running and having a great time. And it really seemed to be like thousands of them. And everyone, the picture of fitness. So what I didn't know is I, right first, it was March. It was likely like the first warm day of the year. I didn't know anything about gloom period coming from Florida. Second, the spring army physical fitness test, the APFT, uh, was like just a few weeks away. And essentially they're all out running because they were worried about their performance on the APFT run. And in essence, Friday afternoon was the only free time they had all week. So since I preferred like athletics, academics, and knowing next to nothing about West Point, I decided right on the spot that that was for me. So let's just say that I learned a lot about you know due diligence from that experience. And I think all of us can say that. We learned a lot more at West Point than we ever imagined we would on that day we chose to attend. And I think it was a powerful lesson for me right from day one when I showed up without knowing a whole lot more about it than, look, there's a lot of people that like to run and they're in shape. So what was your West Point experience like? So again, I think one of the key things you learn um, at West Point is that idea of humility. And, you know, obviously appropriately drilled into all of our heads were the three hallowed words of duty, honor, country. And I know that everybody can repeat that entreaty from General MacArthur. But I think I learned a kind of companion set of values, particularly for a leader in today's age. Uh, and it starts with humility. And I think it's like, again, 
not only applying did I learn humility, I, one of those things is not everything at West Point we learned was 100% correct. So back in the day, and you younger grads might not remember this, every Saturday morning we had inspection, at least in our memory, it was every Saturday morning. So this Sammy inspection, they'd open your medicine cabinet, everything had to be perfectly displayed, and we would blow up our toothpaste tubes. So they were perfectly new, never touched that toothpaste tube any other time, and it just sat there. So my uh, yearling year, I'm down in the University of Florida visiting my, my high school sweetheart, but we'd maybe grown apart during the year. And she was one of the few dorm rooms at the University of Florida that had their own sink. And I opened their medicine cabinet, and sure enough, there was a very poorly displayed toothpaste tube. So I blew it up to show them what it should look like. Let's just say she wasn't impressed with that. Fortunately, she overlooked that mistake, and she's been my partner for 31 years now. But I think that those lessons in humility we learn are, are critically important. And I had a great tactical officer, a guy named Pete. His nickname was Cold Steel Champagne. And uh, he taught us all a lot about humility. Pete was uh, stocky and, and short, a lot like me. In fact, his nickname for me was Fireplug. And so that was another lesson in being humble. This guy gets to be called Cold Steel. And my nickname was Fireplug. He managed to turn that into a compliment. He said, look, if you ever run over by a car, there's likely to be a lot more damage to the car than to you. I took that as a compliment anyway. But Cold Steel wasn't a grad. He went to Norwich and he had a little bit to prove because of that. And so he was going to demonstrate his leadership prowess as a young captain by transforming my cadet company, which, to be honest, didn't have the best reputation, into the highest performing company in the Corps. So he took a personal interest in everything. So not only was our beast barracks demanding, I'm sure it was harder than everybody else's ever, but as soon as the academic year began, like we were doing voluntary physical training at 5 a.m. each morning. Now, the dean found out about that and put it to a halt, but it was a really good indicator of how tough he was on us but he gave us lots of feedback and attention. And so one of the pieces of feedback he gave me, which stuck with me ever since West Point, and because I, I was doing well, I'd done well at Beast Barracks, my grades were doing fine. And uh, Captain Champagne and his best Norwich accent said, you know, the problem with you that five plug is you're almost always right. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that what we're trying to be? Like more right than everybody else and more accurate, more precise, you know, strack, we called it. And he explained, you know, really clearly that wasn't the idea. You want to find the right solution always, not almost always. And the way to do that is to get input from a team and to make sure that everybody understands what you're trying to do. And if you don't get there, then you quickly begin to adapt. So from that point on at West Point, I kind of adopted the two ears and one mouth rule and take the time to listen, to gain feedback and understand the situation before speaking. And I think that was profound for me because West Point, I think uh, Stan McChrystal did a good job of highlighting, doesn't measure everything it takes to be a great leader in the world. And in fact, some of the metrics that you use to measure us aren't perfect. By most of those measurements, I was doing great. But this idea of how to become a humble who leads, we all had this idea, lead from the front, take charge. That's what they taught us, particularly as infantry officers and light engineers. And I think, again, to quote Cold Steel, that phrase is almost always right. We absolutely want to set the example from the front to hold ourselves to higher standards than everybody else. But I actually think that's the way we think about it. It's not lead from the front. It's set the example from the front and lead from the middle. Because in the middle of your team, you get a way better feel for what's going on. And that was one of the real takeaways for me at West Point that by class rank, I was doing fine. I got to be first regimental commander. Even in the dark ages of the 80s, we were the first class to get issued personal computers. 
Now they were personal, but they were the size of foot lockers. We had to lug them across the plane. But I knew at that point that information was going to start going so quickly and so pervasively. No single leader would ever be able to comprehend the entire situation. They'd need their team. And of course, Stan McChrystal also has this book, Team of Teams, which I think is fantastic. And it tells that idea um, that, look, be humble. Don't try to be the expert. You must be tactically and technically proficient. You must know your job and the job of those you're going to lead. But to think you can do it better than them is you know, a stumbling block that West Pointers can encounter. And if I didn't have a great tactical officer like Pete Champagne, I might not have learned that. But that was a powerful takeaway for me. And I really did enjoy most of the aspects of West Point. Like all of us, it's a lot better in the rearview mirror. But I think there's uh, really no finer institution for learning how to lead in the modern age. Fast forwarding a bit, what was your time like in the Army? So I was uh, very fortunate. We all know at West Point, you get your branch by your class rank and then your post. And when I was going through in ni- 1990, there were all the infantry slots anybody could want. Right? So when I chose to go infantry and I stacked rank my options, I knew I was going to get infantry. Like The great part is, as you know, the next semester later, you get to pick your post. And I was the, the number two infantry officer behind a Rhodes Scholar. So I like to say often that I was the smartest person at West Point that was dumb enough to choose infantry. But I really enjoyed infantry and I love leading soldiers. And my first duty assignment was in Vicenza, Italy, which was uh, now the 173rd. Back then it was a combat battalion team and or battalion combat team. And my leader was a guy named John Abizade. So those of you who graduated remember John as the CENTCOM commander. At that time, John was a frocked major. So he promoted basically to lieutenant colonel on paper, not even on paper, right, by rank in order to lead our battalion. And it was the largest standing battalion in the army. And I learned so much from that time working under, you know, General Abizade now and have stayed close to him throughout my whole life that looking back on that moment in time as really a tremendous leadership and growth experience, he taught me tremendous lessons about holding your team members accountable, holding yourself accountable, being adaptable. I remember working and I finally you know, got through being a platoon leader and support platoon leader and was on staff. And we worked all night on a plan. And there are a lot of eyes on this. We were jumping into Sardinia along with fellow NATO troops. And we were part of the Allied Mobile Force, the AMF, which was all the NATO paratroopers. So the staff worked super hard on this plan. And Colonel Abizade said, nah, we're not going to do that. Here's what we're going to do. And change the whole plan on us. And this is a person that obviously put his own career at risk, probably introduced more faults into what might happen and we might not look as good in order to make sure we were very well trained for the time like that that could occur. And so that kind of selfless and brave and, and courage and leadership was something I carried through. I got to command again in Fort Benning in the 3rd Infantry Division. I had another great battalion commander in Tad Davis. And my assignments were really top notch. Uh, we were obviously going through a bit of a drawdown and, and things were tight. So I wasn't able to go to Ranger Regiment as a lieutenant. We weren't allowed to leave Europe. So now I get to the end of my company command and I come home to my wife, who's there with my one-year-old and my three-year-old, and explain I'm going to get a chance to go to Regiment, the Ranger Regiment, for those that are tracking, because I was there at Fort Benning. And that's when she proceeded to explain to me that I, she wasn't having as much fun in the Army as I was. So I chose to go teach economics at West Point. And uh, so I was on that path. And when you get to do that, you go visit business schools. So in early 98, I'm visiting, you know, all the main business schools that I'd been lucky enough to get into. And, you know, I also probably naively and obviously in hindsight, really incorrectly felt that we'd entered an era of American, you know, hegemony and, and, and attainable global peace. 
And I knew the military would continue to play an important role. I just felt that technology, from what I was seeing in 1998 at business school, had this potential to make even more impact on our society. So I chose to leave active duty. I went to business school and uh, then joined the technology industry. Now, clearly, what I didn't know is that all that would change very quickly as we entered the global war on terror less than a year after. So given that, I chose not to resign my reserve commission. I thought it was just my duty to stand ready if our country ever needed someone. I tried to drill actively for two years in the reserves, and it really wasn't compatible with both a young family and my civilian career. But I still remained in the IRR. And 2008, 10 years after that decision, I was called upon to go back. It involved now retired General Abizade, which is a kind of different part of the story. But I returned and I deployed uh, to Baghdad as part of First Corps on their first combat deployment since the Korean War. So that's my military career in a nutshell. Uh, and of course, what I learned in between in the civilian world was very applicable uh, when I was in Iraq. My wife and I had a 13-year-old daughter, 11-year-old son. And at that time, they were still mostly happy to have me around. Anybody in our audience who has teenagers will find that hard to believe. And certainly it did get harder. But at that point, it really was a hard decision to leave our family. And obviously to put my civilian career on pause. Um, I was a chief operating officer of a fintech company with a lot of potential. So to step away from that role, you know, in a critical year in the company's development was was a challenge. I guess I should you know, continue that part of the story. Feeling sorry for myself, I'm leaving all these things behind. Once I got there, I very quickly stopped feeling sorry for myself because my eight years of service immediately after graduating had been super fulfilling. I got to go to ranger school. I became a jump master. I'd had this opportunity to train and parachute with fellow NATO paratroopers and the Allied Mobile Force, but I'd never been sustained in a real combat zone. And now I was, you know, in Baghdad alongside young women and men who are on their third or their fourth combat deployment in the same time span. And uh, it changed my perspective and that humility that I learned at West Point made me even more humble. And serving alongside him was difficult and a tremendous honor. And I was very proud of all we accomplished, right, in service to our country and certainly our ideals, but it left an imprint. And then the final piece to that is I'm an individual augmentee. So after my 13 months of deployment, I returned home early and uh, those flights went through Dallas twice a week. The regular occurrence, the community knew it, it's 2009, and there must have been 400 people lining the corridors of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport welcoming us back. And there were flags, banners, and salutes. But I looked closely at the crowd, what was even more touching to me is how many of them, probably more than half, were Vietnam-era veterans, veterans who'd never received such a warm and dignified welcome. That experience influenced everything I did from coming home. For 13 months, I'd worked alongside young women and men who were fully committed to serving in harm's way. And there I was being welcomed by veterans who we'd failed to do that for three decades earlier. So I wanted to make sure that our current generation of veterans who served would have the support and resources they need help them overcome challenges and make their transition, which is why you're providing this service with this podcast. And I've been really lucky to be involved in many other programs. I started the Vet Force program at Salesforce, where we gave free training to veterans and families and Salesforce technologies. That is still an ongoing program now called Salesforce Military. Many other programs, which I'm happy to share with anyone uh, of interest, which have helped tens of thousands of veterans make the transition. And then selfishly, uh, and I'm gratified to say, many have helped my own teams. And, and even better, using the techniques that have accelerated veterans' transitions, we're also now recruiting and transitioning under-selected minorities and women who might not think about coming into technology into our teams. So all of these things have been the ultimate win-win for me. None of these things are 
path that I set out that I thought when I was a lieutenant and you're filling out your spreadsheet about what your entire military career is going to look like would have occurred. But by essentially being willing to serve and putting your best foot forward and remaining humble, you know, you find yourself in great positions. And I'm very fortunate to be in this one, surrounded by a lot of great veterans and a lot of great people who might not have thought they'd have careers in technology simply because I got that call from General Abizade um, now 13 years ago. So your path is similar to an interview that Lance and I recently did with Rodney Manzo, who's a West Point classmate. So Rodney went to West Point, crushed it at Beast Barracks. I was a firsthand witness, I crushed it as a cadet, Ranger School, Sapper School, Aerosol, Airborne, was a track team captain, just has done amazingly well. And then you can contrast that with Han Kim and Stan McChrystal, who really struggled at West Point, but managed to figure out what they needed to do to excel. And so it's interesting that despite all your accolades and achievements, you talk about humility. I want to flip that script a real quick and talk about the MacArthur Award, because you mentioned duty, honor, country, of course, that speech, and saw that as an officer, you got the MacArthur Leadership Award, which I'm tracking is only given to like the top 25 junior officers. And so could you elaborate about being selected for that? Sure. Uh, I think it's a tremendous program. So the MacArthur Leadership Award, to your point, is awarded the 25 officers. It's split half and half between Reserve National Guard and active duty. So you're one of 12 or 13 active duty officers that's nominated. And, you know, it comes back to just applying all those proper lessons that we learned around leadership at West Point, And then you hone and refine. And I was very fortunate in my experience as a lieutenant to work for great battalion commanders, including John Abizade and I just applied those lessons learned as a company commander and our company, you know, delivered strong results. It was a mechanized infantry company. I know I made them foot march a lot more than anybody in the past had, like Stan McChrystal. I think that's, that is a strong driver of discipline and cohesion and it worked for us and we excelled. And so I was really honored to get the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. to receive the award. And it's fun now because I have several, you know, classmates, including roommates who are generals. And uh, they have their name on very big plaques in the Pentagon. But I tease them that they can go down the hall and one of them walks by the, pla- the MacArthur plaque every day. And my font is tiny. It's about six point. But my name's going to be there after theirs goes away. So it's kind of fun to tease them about that. I know several leaders. General Bernie Banks, who if you guys haven't spoken with yet, you should. A tremendous leader is also on that board. And so it's an honor just to be among those folks. And it was a great way to leave active duty and continue the transition and to remind you that your first obligation is to serving right, those you work with. And uh, I think as doing that was probably the biggest reason um, that I was nominated and, and selected for the award. One more question before we go to Lance's section. Were there any particular classes at West Point that were super impactful to you? I actually loved almost all our classes. I really did. I, I thought West Point structure was phenomenal in that you have, in most colleges, all of these kind of paths you take. And I love the fact that we had to take a lot of classes at West Point to become right knowledgeable in a great number of things. And I really appreciated that. As a matter of fact, I appreciate it so much that I studied national security and public affairs. And that was actually a field of study at West Point. And of course, you know, my classmates would say that NSPA stood for not studying particularly anything, which I'll accept because I was lucky to be good at math. I got to skip a few math classes upon arrival by testing out. So I went deep, obviously, into political science and economics and into history. 
which I think history absolutely rhymes, doesn't repeat itself, but the ability to learn and dig deep into that was powerful. One of my favorite courses was, two of them were on Russian history, taught by, uh, at that time, Major Dan Bolger, who's now retired and has written several good books. And I wouldn't have thought all the things he taught us about the Soviet Union and Russia, you know, 10 years ago, I thought, geez, that's old news. And guess what? It's back to being very important. And so I hearken back to a lot of those lessons from understanding the history of the Soviet Union, the history of Russia, which motivates a lot of their right, the activities that the Russian government is undertaking now. And I, I don't probably regret a single class at West Point. I, even boxing was, was a learning experience. So I'm a great hog in that. I think it's a tremendous institution. I love the fact that every cadet must be well-rounded. I love the fact that even if you major in English, you graduate with a bachelor. And, and I think that's a, a standard that West Point continues to uphold. And I love everything that our dean and our academic faculty at West Point are doing. Dan, let's move into the next segment, which is what we call the sit rep or the situation report. And this is where we go into what you're doing now. And you alluded to this previously in the podcast, but could you walk us through your career post the military from business school through to where you're at today? Life is about intentional and unintentional mentors and finding them. Because I was at business school with a one-year-old and a three-year-old, I actually split my summer and did two internships. So I didn't take any time off and I did an internship at McKinsey, an internship at a software company. And I thought, all right, so I want to work at McKinsey, tremendously smart people, fantastic ethics and how they do consulting. So I thought I'll go out to essentially San Francisco, see the McKinsey office, because clearly they're doing a lot of software work. It was like most all banking. And while I was there, a classmate of mine, John Newhard, said, hey, while you're here, come visit Tom Siebel. And Tom was running Siebel Systems, which was really first of its kind, at least of its scale, CRM, Customer Relationship Management Software. And Tom is phenomenal, and I loved working for him, and I learned a lot of lessons from Tom. But he did lean across to me and say, so I understand you're going to go to McKinsey, and there's a lot of smart people there, and they're going to tell people how to run their companies, and that's what you'll be doing. He said, that's great. I understand that, and you're clearly smart enough to do it. But just remember, you're always going to be a virgin telling people how to have sex. And I can relate to that analogy. So I went to work with Tom at, at Siebel Systems, and I learned a tremendous amount about enterprise software. And Tom took the charter of Siebel very seriously. All of our conference rooms were named after our customers. This focus on customer success was critical to him. And then I've carried that through my career. From there, I worked at a fintech startup. After I got back, Tom was starting a new company. So he recruited me to work there at a company called C3AI. And interestingly, one of my early conversations at Siebel was with a person named Mark Benioff, who had started a different company called Salesforce. And Mark had recalled that conversation, but also recalled that because I was working at Siebel, nothing legal, there was nothing that would prevent me from going. I just at the time felt with my ethics, it wasn't the right thing to leave Siebel and go to its up and coming competitor. 10 years later, I didn't feel the same, I guess, uh, compunction against that. And Mark was doing a lot of exciting things, expanding into enterprise. Salesforce started as a very, call it small, medium in business, easy use case. But to go to enterprise becomes much more complex. You need a lot of partners. I built a lot of my knowledge building and working in partner ecosystems. So I went to Salesforce and spent five years there. I uh, then went to one of their partners, a company uh, called BMC. And part of that drive was I absolutely believe systems of record, you know, like Salesforce are important. But one of the things I was seeing was all the information we collect, not just about customers, but about everything around us is growing exponentially. We look at right now, more things are connected than ever before. And each of those things that's connected 
is throwing off more data, an order of magnitude more data. So we're having tighter and tighter exponential increases of data. And that led me to uh, be here at TIBCO. You know, at TIBCO, what we do is we unlock the power um, of real-time data for faster, smarter decisions. And we solve the world's most complex data challenges. So all of my career, again, not intentionally, has been around starting at a great system that used some data to understanding that now data itself is the system and a great you know, organization like TIBCO, which manages data at high speed, delivers hyperconverged analytics, connects everything that needs to be connected and intelligently manages it is a powerful place to be. And so it's really fun now to take all those lessons I learned about conference rooms named after customers and go deep into how we are helping our customers transform. And our customers range from you know, Federal Express to United to most all the, all the Western pharmaceutical companies. For example, there's not a vaccine in the Western hemisphere that's not produced by a typical customer. There's not a plane flown by a major airline in the Western hemisphere, including Europe, which isn't powered by TIBCO in some way or another. Almost all the financial transactions at the world's largest banks are powered by TIBCO in one way or another. So it's very fun to be part of an organization where your focus on customers is so important because if you let that customer down, they're letting down millions of customers. They're letting down our economy. You know? And so it's a very fun place to get an ch- opportunity to be a leader. And I'm very proud of our team, and I'm certainly proud of the way we you know, serve our customers. You've been at various companies in leadership roles. Very curious how your leadership experience in the military has set you up for your leadership roles at these companies, and if there's any one, two, or three things that have really stuck with you from the military. Yeah, so I think it comes back to this idea that you're never going to accomplish as much as an individual as you will with a team. And you know, oftentimes, that's accelerated by technology, right? So there's a proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together, right? Fast, alone, far, together. And in technology, we break that paradigm. Like that proverb was stated when we all moved by foot. Let's take the simplest example of technology. It's a rowing shell, right? So you take a rowing shell and if the team is working together, they're aligned and oh no, by the way, they're all pulling in the same direction. They'll go faster and farther together than any individual ever will. And so that's the biggest thing I learned is, you know, that every individual in service to the larger team makes a big difference. So as I mentioned, I get this opportunity as we're recruiting, transitioning military folks. And one great program is a program called uh, Breakline, which I highly recommend to anybody who's making their transition. Please, you know, check them out and I'm happy to connect you with them. And Breakline is mostly around transitioning people into IT. So information technology. And what I tell each of those team members, you know, or prospective team members is the most important I and T you're going to bring are integrity and teamwork. You can bring integrity. You can say what you say. You can say what you mean, do what you're going to do. That's integrity, though, all those aspects of holding yourself to the high standard. But you can also be clear, hey, man, I'm in this for me. I'm going to be, to use, not to pick on bankers, but the best banker in the world. And I don't need to work with a team. I need to have the best idea. And that's awesome. You're just not going to work in my organization. My organization, if you understand that, you're always going to be better when you have shared consciousness, to use right, General McChrystal's term, and you recognize that you're in this together with a team who will do better if you're rowing in the same direction and you're aligned. Uh, that's powerful. So it almost comes full circle to this whole duty on our country idea. For me, my new mantra, if you will, those three hallowed words are humility, as I said, the idea leading from the middle, integrity and teamwork. I think they're absolutely as powerful for a leader in the modern age as they were for us then. 
And I think indirectly, we all learned those at West Point. They just weren't part of our plebe knowledge. And that's helped me become a leader and help me, more importantly, develop leaders in the organizations I've had the opportunity to, to work in. Dan, the company recently announced that you'll be merging with Citrix. What has that experience been like? And more broadly, what has it been like working with private equity? Yeah, it's a great question. If people haven't worked in private equity, there's a lot of misconceptions. And, you know, one book in particular paints private equity in, in bad light. I actually find it very intellectually stimulating. You're typically working with technologies that are super meaningful, that have an opportunity to do better. But the public markets aren't always, and I was just with Dina Friedman at NASDAQ, and she's phenomenal understanding this, not always the best place to go through transformation. There's now, fortunately, plenty of examples right, over the many years since that first book came out about private equity of where you're able to transform an organization to put it on better footing and either to recapitalize it, go back out public. And I think private equity is exceptional at doing that. And, and I love this idea of it's very leadership driven. You have to make tough decisions. There's no marketing flash in private equity. There's more than one public company out there who markets something really cool that has a future and their stock trades on that. And I think that's ephemeral. What I love about private equity is right, you trade on the fundamentals. And if you go back out to the market, it's on the fundamentals. So that's been very exciting for me. Vista is my current uh, private equity owner, and I'm partnered uh, with Elliott as we are merging with Citrix. Can't speak about what that looks like, but I can say I'm very excited about what we're able to unlock. As you think about, again, this idea that what we do at TIBCO is give our teams and our customers access to data no matter where it is. For those of you that understand data, it's never going to be in one data center ever again. It's not going to be in one data lake. It's likely not even to be in one hyperscaler ever again. Some of it's going to be out on point systems. So at TIBCO, we make you, an organization's able to access that data seamlessly, to intelligently unify it, and then confidently predict the next best actions around it with our analytics portfolio. Citrix is dealing and supporting the same thing. Customers, people, cultures are going to be, let's say, in more places than ever before. We used to come to the office to answer the phone. And then we went, came to the office to, to access our systems. Now we're going to do all those things everywhere. So this idea of data from wherever it is to team members, wherever they are, is powerful. And we're going to help collectively help organizations unlock that with right fast, seamless, and secure access to everything they need, no matter where their team members are. So that's pretty exciting. And I think it's got great, if, if you're a, an industry analyst, you call it tailwinds, and I believe it is, but I think it's also driven by just the incredible innovation of our teams. The TIBCO team members are excited about this and really you know, have built a fantastic reputation with our customers. The Citrix team is obviously leaning forward and has delivered a lot of great product and their market leaders and all the segments they care about. So we see a really fun opportunity to bring the two teams together. I want to go back to your career and talk something that's more operational and tactical. So when we talked to Ben Fall, he talked about the importance of sales. And he said, sales is an infantry, but it's also not infantry. And he also said that some veterans, and this was a conversation Lance and I had back and forth with him, is that some veterans, when they transition, don't think about sales or think it's a bad word. And looking at your career, you've been You've had a lot of sales roles. What advice, if any, would you give to transitioning veterans on sales? So it's a great question. I have had you know general manager jobs where I ran R&D, et cetera, but I absolutely gravitate towards the customer company interface a lot. And the reason it's so powerful in software is in the end, we're there to solve customer problems. 
And right, if you are an account executive, and I'm very careful in our terminology because at TIBCO, as I mentioned, we are unlocking real-time data to solve the world's most challenging data problems and make faster, smarter decisions. That's not a sales rep's job. That's an account executive's job. They're thinking about multiple factors or understanding the value they're delivering. And so our team members who are customer facing are account executives and customer success managers or executives. And I believe that language matters because it absolutely describes what they're doing. And I encourage anyone who's thinking about the transition to go do it. And many people will be like, it's a little scary because it's the one job, to be clear, where there's a score. Sometimes every week, certainly every quarter, and absolutely every year. And in the military, that's exactly what we had. We had an APFT or now that you're ACFT two times a year. You had marksmanship scores. And guess what? You studied, you practiced, you trained, and you did well in those. And I see veterans making the transition do extraordinarily well in customer-facing roles. To your point, sometimes it comes with a negative connotation. They all think everything is the salesperson that they might see in a, in a car lot or somewhere else. But being account executive in a world-class software company, I think is a very rewarding role. And again, it puts you right where right your software is making the most difference, which is with your customers. So I wouldn't change that aspect of it. I'm glad I took the time to run a uh, software you know, a development team because it teaches you, right, that it's not easy either. And it, when you're an account executive, you have this idea, oh, if they just built this into our product or we just had this feature, this would be so much easier. And understanding, right, why some things don't happen overnight and everybody is doing their best is also powerful. So no matter what role you take and product managers, R&D leaders, program managers, take the time to understand what the people to your left and right are doing. Right? In the same way at West Point, you know, we did Combines Arm Week. We, we rode in and Abrams, the next day we were using Bangalore torpedoes. I think this idea of knowing what everybody is doing is powerful and you know, being an account executive does help you get that experience very quickly. So I agree with Ben in almost all things. Uh, and I would encourage people to look at it very carefully as they make their transition. And again, great programs are available. Breakline is one example where We've hired several of our account executives and several of our leaders who go through that program. And Vets in Tech, based in San Francisco, was also phenomenal. There are resources to help you make the transition. I definitely appreciate that I went to business school, but I don't think that's a requirement. As a matter of fact, the very first veteran I recruited was a Naval Academy grad who's a phenomenal leader named Ben Stein. He's now running all of our international sales in our small, medium business unit. He went straight right through from being the speechwriter in Annapolis through Breakline, but I could tell that talent. Now, since then, he did his MBA while he was with my company, but I don't think you necessarily have to get your MBA either. I do think it's it's important at some point because coming back full circle, it gives you exposure to things that are outside your day-to-day. It's harder work. Ben certainly had to put in extra time, but I think he's getting that benefit in spades now. Tying a few themes you said around being a generalist and how you really liked West Point, you get a English major, but you're still a BS. And it feels like between West Point, infantry, a generalist, and the AE role, it feels like those are all very generalist roles in the sense that you have to be customer facing and yet know many aspects of the business. Yeah. I, look, I'm, you know, a, a lieutenant in the military is. You're ideally, right? You're saw gunner or you're out of your machine gun gunner. They're better at that than you. You know how to do their job and you know how to recognize excellence and how to train them. 
And I'd certainly had squad leaders that were more proficient than I was, had more time in the field and better. But you learn their jobs and you set the example, as I said, from the front by holding yourself to a higher standard. But you lead from the middle, acknowledging their expertise, holding them accountable when they're not. You're not trying to be their buddy. And there's a big difference. You know, that's a different lesson I learned from General Abizade one time. But you shouldn't be afraid to get to know them and get to appreciate what they bring to the table and then recognize them for that. And again, it's not so much being afraid of being an expert, it's being excited about knowing more, being excited about taking the time to understand what's happening around you and raising your head up. And you try to do that in your own personal habits every day too. We're going to move into the next and third segment, the SOP or standard operating procedures. In this segment, we're gonna talk about the personal routines, habits, and words to live by that have been instrumental to your success. So we know you do triathlons, uh, not just triathlons, but Ironman triathlons. And we know that you also escort visually impaired runners. So we'd love to talk about that. But the first question is, what routines or habits do you have in the military or West Point that you still adhere to? Yeah, well, I think, Tim, you said this once, which is great. Aside from being a professional athlete, the military is the only place where you get paid to work out. And I think that was obviously a habit that's instilled into everything. Yeah, you learn how to do it with less sleep than most people. And I think that's also powerful as well to have the discipline to get yourself up when you might be tired and know you're going to feel better later on in the day because you worked out. And I'm like Stan McChrystal, who I know shared this. I'll get up as early as I need to get my workout out of the way. It's too easy for something to step in over the top of that. So that's the number one habit of keeping myself able to do this. The way I think about my habits are right, body, mind, and soul. Your body has to come first because if your body breaks down, that's the carrier for all those other things. And so that training that we developed, and I loved leading PT, I wasn't the biggest uh, lieutenant there, but as a result, I had to be in the best shape. And I was um, either on the APFT or I would even get in that. I don't know if you guys still call it the king of the pit game where you had to throw people out of sawdust. I would step in there with anybody because you had to be able to set that example, right? And know that you were willing, you know, shoulder more than your share of the task. So I think that's the number one thing I learned is taking care of the machine that's your body, getting the workout in. The reason I do Ironmans and run marathons is so that I have something to train for. Nothing more motivates me better than the fear of like failing. So I sign up for races. I have right, a half Ironman coming up in June, a full Ironman coming up in October. And then and to your point, I will guide in a marathon in December, one of my visually impaired friends. So having that in your cycle and building the discipline around your training schedule is everything. And that helps you know tremendously. Now you go from body to mind. And in the military, we learned the same thing. Like you were constantly go into a course. You finish being a platoon leader, you go to the career course. Finish the career course, right? You go to another course. And doing that day in and day out and learning is key as well. So much like I work out every day, I always try to read something that's not directly related to my work every day. Now, audiobooks and podcasts are awesome because I do cheat and count that as reading. But because I do long bouts on the bike, I mean, I usually do that when I'm on a trainer during the week, I can listen to a book and process that. And I try to have it be wide ranging. I love history, um, but also you know, read every pen General McChrystal's put to paper. I think that the modern leaders have so much to share as well. And that's really been powerful for me is thinking, okay, first I take care of my body. Then I focus on my mind and how I'm always expanding it. And of course, like all things, it's not a trite saying. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. 
And that's a powerful place to be because if you've been able to continue to think, learn about other things, and the second you stop doing that, I think that it becomes very difficult to be the person you, you set out to be. And those two things obviously come back to the soul piece. We're on this planet, right, to engage with other humans and make the world a better place in whatever small way we can. And that's kind of what I like to do in every evening is right, reflect on the day. And have I been the best person I can be? Have I been the best father and the best spouse and partner that I can be? And I uh, resolve to fix it either right there on the spot, if it's my spouse, or as soon as I see that person the next day. And I think thinking in terms of that throughout your day is really powerful, which is body first, get it out of the way, knock it out. Your mind, if you can do it during that workout, great, but make sure you're setting aside time to learn something new or explore something you wouldn't have done otherwise. And then soul is great in the evenings when you have that quiet time reflection and think about your day and what you did or didn't do. And uh, we all make mistakes as you know, too many to list here each day, but never going to sleep satisfied that you did your absolute best because you can always be better. And so that's kind of the way I think about my habits and it's the mindset I've developed in this idea, you know, body, mind, and soul. Two things I want to riff off. One, we've um, mentioned Ben Fall a lot, but he also said when he journals, he feels like you get 2x more out of life. And like you just, you get to reflect, you get to think, and and then you get to react and understand what to do next. And that feels like you do a fair bit of that. Uh, the second thing I want to say is you're able to combine body and mind. And so that feels very productive in the sense of working out and also learning. And I actually want to quickly talk about another routine that Stan McChrystal talked about, which is around sleep. So I feel like you probably have very little sleep. And so I'm curious how you approach that and how that might have changed over the years. Well, look, and Stan, I know he talked about his four-hour sleep cycle when he was commander of CENTCOM. And I think the military teaches you that you can do without sleep, but not forever. So what I learned is never feel sorry for myself um, if I'm sleepy and tired. I do a lot of international travel. I always set the clock to wherever I'm going. And I never remind myself what the time zone is, wherever I came from, unless it's to remind myself, it's okay, you can stay up later, get up earlier. I average a little over six hours of sleep. So I do track my sleep score via various tools and I'm always barely above average. I sleep very soundly. There's a joke when you're a CEO that you sleep like a baby, you wake up every two hours crying. I don't do that. I'm able to reflect and go to sleep pretty quickly, but I do usually get up early because I want to get my workout in and, and want to make sure I get that, a good start to the day. I think, you know, Stan talked about four hours a night was not sustainable and now he sleeps a lot more. I do know that doctors say otherwise and you want to have an established sleep schedule. I think mindset has a lot to do with it. I just try not to dwell on it if I'm on a different time zone. And if I arrive, let's say in Europe at 9 a.m., I play through till the evening and then I can go to sleep. And those things are powerful. So much of its mindset. And I drive my family and some of my colleagues crazy by never letting them talk about what time zone they came from or why they're tired. It just doesn't matter. It's a, yes, you want to be performing your best. You want to make sure you don't neglect your body by not getting enough sleep. But in those moments where you can focus and Ranger School, uh, National Training Center. I did six rotations to the combination of national, six, or, six the National Training Center, including time as a cadet, two to JRTC, and like four to the training centers in Europe. So like those are absolutely sleep-depriving moments and you learn where your limit is, but you also learn you can push harder than you usually think you could, certainly before you went through that. 
I have one last question on this segment before we move on to Lance's final segment, which is around family. So we recently had the good fortune to talk to Mark McLaughlin and also a CEO. And we uh, talked to Rodney Manzo, I referenced earlier, a classmate of mine and also a CEO. And they both talked about the importance of family. And you've talked about your family and how that impacted your decision to transition. But we'd love to hear any thoughts you have around balancing all those things and family. Yeah. So, you know, I, mean, I do think that there's this idea of particularly in this modern age, right? How does work integrate into your life and not separate from your life? And how do you find ways to, to make time and, and set things up? So for me, I created some structures. At a point, I picked up my daughter every Monday night from gymnastics. That was our time. And after her gymnastics, then we would go to dinner together. I'm so happy I did that because it makes a big difference now in the, the really powerful, strong 27-year-old woman she is. But you carved that and made that time. Uh, I coached my son's soccer team, as I mentioned to you guys, offline. And I committed to do that. I started it, I think, when they were in first grade and coached them all the way up through high school. But I did that by being, you know, how do you think it creative? I was there on Monday night. I would red-eye to wherever I needed to be for work or otherwise. And on Wednesday, I had a professional trainer who worked with them on their skills. And I, by Friday practice, I'd be back to get ready for the game on Saturday. So I do think, think all of these things are possible if you're creative and you make it a priority. I like to make things a priority by scheduling, right? In the same way I make sure I have an Ironman on the calendar, I made sure I had that Monday night dinner with my daughter on the calendar. And if I didn't make that, then I had to make it up. And I made sure I had practice to see him work with my son on. Now, through all of this, my wife, Terry, is just a phenomenal life partner. Uh, she was there in Vicenza with me. And when we would be gone for four weeks at a time and come back, she was kind of like Snow White and the you know, seven dirty infantrymen. She would drag us to different places. We went to Montreux Jazz Fest after coming out of the field simply because she planned it. And so we've got a great partnership on that. And she now runs her own college planning business and is very successful. But uh, she certainly, uh, you know, made sacrifices for our family when the military and, uh, you know, that's powerful too. But I think Stan covered this as well. Like mostly you look back, not at the mistakes you made, but the things you did, but the things that you didn't do. And I always want to make sure I still carve time for friends who are retiring. One of my soccer players from that same team that my son was on, who I coached from about first grade on, just graduated Ranger School last week on Friday. So I flew the red eye on Thursday showed up for graduation, pinned his tab on Friday and flew back out Friday night. And that was crazy. It wasn't the healthiest thing to do. I did get in my run as well on the Chattahoochee, but the tired's over now. I'm recovered from that. And that experience for him and for me was super powerful. Take that extra time to do those things for the people you care about, because you remember that far more than right the extra meeting you might've scheduled or attended, or you're going to have to do those things too. I guess I'd say the TV show you might've watched, just don't watch much TV. Dan, we're at the end of our time, unfortunately. The last segment is what we call giving back. And you know, as we alluded to prior to the show, a lot of this podcast is listened to by transitioning veterans, for example, as well as cadets and a few others. And you've already given tons of nuggets of wisdom on this, but is there any final advice that you'd like to share for someone who is leaving the military and transitioning to the civilian world? Sure. So first, if you're transitioning out and you want to work at a world-class software company, make sure you reach out to me and we'll get you in touch with our team. And uh, make sure you also check out Breakline and Vets in Tech, two great programs. And there's many others, but those are two that I would highlight. Because again, those are people who have built programs all about helping people transition. And as I mentioned, Breakline now runs great programs 
for underselected minorities and women as well. So there are resources available. You're not out, you know, this on your own. Don't ping somebody randomly and ask what advice you have, right? But build that network. And in the end, you've got to be a little bit more flexible. I think in the military, there's a pretty clear career path. And as I said, as a lieutenant, I blocked out what every two years would look like. And I shared it on the spreadsheet with my wife. Out here, you got to evaluate. And I think Dan Stan mentioned this as well. Some opportunities just come up and they're not what you were planning for. And if it's people you want to work with, with a product that's making a meaningful impact and you believe in it, and you think you can make a meaningful difference, consider it and, and evaluate it. Don't ever think, uh, that's not for me. That's not my area. Continue to explore those opportunities because I say this somewhat facetiously, but somewhat true. Like all the best career planning is done in the rearview mirror. Yes, your life will make sense as you look back, but I don't believe you have to plan out every two years like we thought we had to as lieutenants in order to make an impact. And then along the way, look for those opportunities to get outside yourself. For me, it was creating programs for veterans. One of the veterans that I got to know really well was visually impaired. And so I started training with him. Um, and before long, we were doing marathons. And now I support an organization called United in Stride, another organization called Team with a Vision. We run in the Boston Marathon every year. We run in the California National Marathon, which is the national championships for blind athletes. And uh, it's like all things. You think, uh, you know, I'm going to help this person. And then you get to know these visually impaired athletes and the challenges they've overcome and the people that they are. And again, it's a silly saying, we all say it, but you get so much more from those people than you give to them. For one, when you're running a marathon with a visually impaired person, they talk the whole time. And so you're occupied. It's a blast. Like running a marathon alone is just a struggle and you're bored. Like when I finished a marathon with Rich Hunter, who, oh, by the way, is a fantastic marathoner. We actually ran a Boston qualifying time together at Boston as a, as, and he was visually impaired. It's a blast because he has more stories and more thoughts. And since he's not taking in the same visual stimulation, you have a great conversation. And, you know, I'd love to say all 26 miles go before it's over, but, but they don't. You still feel it around mile 20. But that's just a micro version of this macro that you really do when you step up to, to volunteer to give something, you do get more out of it. And that's one of those areas where I've been very lucky to get to know a lot of great athletes. I've now run 10 or 14, I don't, don't even know exactly, probably 10 or 12 uh, visually impaired marathons. I guess if it, you half marathons in the 15 or 16s, and it's great. And I've got to know all the different athletes and their backgrounds and what brought them here. Some are impacted veterans who lost their vision in service. Some have not had vision their whole lives and some have lost it. And just like all of us out here, each person is different. And getting to immerse yourself in somebody else's life and understand that just makes you a better human. And so I really enjoy that. Dan, your career, more than any other guests we have interviewed, has been a reflection of humble leadership and of doing well and doing good. Thank you for giving back to the community, hiring veterans, creating programs for hiring veterans. I'm sure I'm going to miss an organization, but Breakline, Vets in Tech, IAVA, Wounded Warrior Project, United in Stride. Thank you so very much for taking the time to chat with Lance and me and for giving back to the West Point community. Hey, it's my honor. And uh, you did a great job. Those are all great organizations and I'm happy to support them. Take care, everybody. On Point is a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.